Happy Thursday, everybody. This is Brandon Busteed, president of University Partners and head of Learn Work Innovation at Kaplan. And welcome to Bold Leaders in Learning. I'm excited today to have a chance to talk with one of my former colleagues and current friends, Dr. Ella Washington, who's a professor at Georgetown. She also runs her own con uh, company, uh, whose name I love, Elevate uh, Solutions, of course. So can't come up with a better name than that. Uh, um, and we're going to be talking today uh, about diversity, inclusion, equity. I'm going to talk about a little bit through the perspective of her work that she's doing with companies and organizations of all types. We're going to talk specifically about higher education. But first of all, Ella, thank you for joining. It's great to see you. Great to catch up with you. Please tell everybody a little bit about your own personal background and a little bit about the work you do, both as a professor and as a consultant. Absolutely. Well, Brandon, always great to catch up with you. So thanks for having me. You know, my work really is at the intersection of both research and practice. And that's what I love to do. That's kind of been the story of my career. Even back at Gallup, it was it was much of the same. Um, my work in, in the academic space really focuses on researching and understanding uh, companies' organizational journeys around DEI. And so oftentimes organizations will say, you know, we know it's a journey, but what does that really mean? Um, because oftentimes leaders, you know, the first question they'll ask me is, well, where do, how do we compare to other companies and what can we do right away for some of the quick wins? And so my, my research looks at what does that journey look like? What does it entail? Um, and how do you kind of activate on these, these lofty and well-intentioned goals? But what does that mean, you know, over the course of time and challenges they may uh, face? Um, from a consulting perspective, I, I help organizations bring those thoughts to life, right? And so uh, many organizations are looking to strategize in a meaningful way uh, for the first time, surprisingly. You know, even organizations that have been uh, very focused in the, the DEI space and have great programs and you know have great missions around DEI, they didn't have a, a strategic vision and they hadn't taken a step back to think, how do all of these activities that we're doing connect? Um, and so it, it seems like, you know, with the current civil rights movement, we're seeing much more of that taking a step back and thinking about who we want to be, how we want to show up. And well, then where once do, we how have do we prepare clarity around that, how do we activate on it? And so that's kind of where my research and practice um, form, form a perfect marriage to me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's an, it's, a, it's an exciting combination. And it was one of the things that uh, I know you and I connected on right away during our time at Gallup. And um, so I, I'd love to know, right, uh, give me some of the high level takeaways from the last, say, six months of work you've been doing Obviously, DEI was an important topic that, uh, that was on the radar long before this pandemic. Uh, and, and, and in the context, though, of this year, right, we, we have had as much uh, civil unrest around race, among, uh, around socioeconomic status and clashes, right, with what's happening. Um, hard to imagine, you know, a more tumultuous time. So, you know, I know you've been very busy. I know you've been very in demand. Give us some sense of some of, of what's happening out there, right? What are the big takeaways that you're seeing from the work you're doing with companies? Is this really different? Like, are they going to do anything different now? Or is this more of like, hey, this is an issue we've got to talk about and do something about. And are we just going to be back into the same old cycle of, you know, ups and downs and the progress we're making on this? Yeah, great question. So, you know, it's interesting because my colleagues and I have been doing this work collectively over 30 plus years. So the work of diversity management, diversity and inclusion, and now diversity, equity and inclusion and belonging 
and all those great things. It's not new work. Um, you know, the, the impetus for the importance of the work is not new. Um, and so it's very interesting, you know, having my foot in the academic space as well as the practitioner space, hearing how the conversations often are not aligning. And so, you know, back in June when Black Lives Matter uh, had the resurgence, uh, many corporations kind of had an awakening to the importance of having, you know, strategy around diversity and inclusion, um, the importance of being transparent around their metrics, the importance of understanding their employee experiences. And, you know, from a, a academic perspective, we've been doing this work again for over 30 plus years. And so right. what I think is different is I think it, you know, feels uh, like organizations really are understanding that it is going to take a, a long-term um, commitment in order to really be effective. I think yeah. in the past, there has been this sense of let's throw resources at it, let's throw money um, at this uh, diversity and inclusion problem. Um, and, you know, I, I even see organizations talking about it a little bit differently now. Instead of that, we have a diversity inclusion problem, it's they're really thinking uh, more thoughtfully about how do we create a diverse and inclusive environment? Uh, how do we create a diverse and inclusive culture? And though it might seem like a small shift, it really does influence the way leaders are approaching this work, uh, the, the way leaders are taking ownership of this work and the way employees are, I think, experiencing uh, the changes that are being made. And so that's what I would say is are, are the major differences. But I do think it's a little too soon to tell. And so I think how, yeah. part, of, part of this is me being optimistic about, you know, people being serious uh, this time around and that we won't have to have another civil rights resurgence uh, for organizations to remain committed uh, to their, their DEI goals. Right. So I'm encouraged to hear that your sense is that they're acknowledging it as a longer term ongoing initiative as opposed to something that kind of happens more sporadically. And um and, and I think, well, I, I don't know, I'll take a little bit from what your comments, but correct me if I'm off in, in what I was reading into it, but it sounds like their, their organizations and leaders are also starting to look at this as an opportunity, right? Not just a problem they have to deal with, but like if they can do this well, right? If they can really shift themselves to a position where, you know, they make dramatic improvements in the feelings of inclusivity among current employees and a real effort to drive a different kind of talent pipeline and recognize talents in ways that they might not, it's an opportunity. Do you sense that they're starting to think about it as, I'll call it offense as opposed to playing defense? Do you, do you sense that at all? Absolutely. So I think that organizations that have taken the time and done the work to understand their current state. So, you know, that's one of the first critical steps of uh, this process is understand where we are, um, but also understand where we want to be. And I think in, in having those strategic conversations, they're starting to realize that we can be a bit more innovative in this space. We can use this to attract uh, a talent pipeline. You know, one of one of my clients just the other day was talking about how you know they are hearing in interview processes that that people are being attracted to their organization because they've heard of some of the DEI shifts they've made just in the past few months, right? And so, you know, while organizations are trying to to solve some of the previous challenges they've had, I think by thinking strategically about not what just we want to do today, but how we want to show up five years from now helps them to have a better connected strategy. Um, and I hope that continues because, you know, there's often this conversation about the business case versus the moral case, but we know that it's both, right? And yeah. so we don't want to, to lose the impetus to be innovative 
through inclusion um, to push what the boundaries of accepting all types of diversity means um, just as a reaction to the current moment and you know organizations feeling a sense of guilt that they hadn't engaged in this conversation previously. Right. And you've mentioned something to me uh, right before we came on live about uh, this notion of intersectionality. And I thought that was really intriguing. Tell us a little bit more about what, what you mean by that. Yeah, so, you know, in, in much of the conversations that we have, first of all, we, when we say diversity, we usually mean demographic diversity, and specifically, we usually mean race, gender, and age, and, uh, you know, gender identity and sexual orientation, and while those aspects of diversity are certainly important, and oftentimes we consider those, you know, the, the aspects that are most primary to the core of our identity, um, those aren't the only facets of diversity, um, and also, you are more than just one thing, so you're, you're not just a woman. You're not just a black employee. There's this, uh, you know, natural intersectionality that happens. Uh, but our conversations and our strategies around DEI haven't elevated to that level yet. They haven't activated on that. And I think organizations are still, by and large, struggling with that. They're they're really stuck in, you know, well, what do we do about our gender problem? What do we do about, especially now, our race problem? But what's interesting is, you know, after doing about 100 focus groups uh, with organizations over the past uh, three or four months, you know, employees are, are really pushing the envelope. They want to be recognized for their intersectionality. If they see, you know, demographic data that is just race and gender, they want to know, well, what, what percentage of the population are, are women that are people of color, right? And so right. Um, I think organizations are having to pick up more quickly than they have in the past um, because employees are are feeling that need. Um, and I do hope that, you know, that push around intersectionality continues both in the practice space, but I think it also will propel what we know from a research lens um, around these intersections of identity. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. It brings important nuances, right, in terms of how we think about the issue and then also how people bring themselves into the issue, because you're right, you know, hardly anybody is, you know, single dimensional in terms of thinking about those different pieces when you start to layer in socioeconomic status and other types of background, right? Um, you know, it, 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 it's, uh, it's encouraging to, to think that we might be kind of pushing uh, the dimensions on how we, how we think about this. And so I, I know largely you've done a lot of consulting recently with, with companies um, and you work in higher education. You and I overlapped in some of the work we did at Gallup and higher education advising and some research there. You know, I, I think most people would say, well, geez, colleges and universities um, are theoretically doing better on DEI because, you know, they're organizations whose missions have been more closely aligned to, you know, doing good and embracing people and, you know, elevating people from whatever, you know, status they came to through this beautiful thing we call it education. Tell me a little bit about your views of higher education, right? Is higher education out in front of other uh, organizations or not so much? Yeah, so I think it's this really interesting push and pull uh, that I, I've started to think about since our conversations, Brandon, of, you know, higher education is out in front with things like student activism. Um, so, you know, we have seen lots of student activism over the years, and that often is the push for organizations in the higher ed space to make changes, significant changes. Um, and, and that's unique because I think you see in higher ed lots of grassroots efforts as opposed to in uh, the corporate space, they are struggling to uh, resist top-down uh, you know, efforts only. And how do they manage this top-down and bottom-up perspective that's needed? Um, 
However, you know, where higher ed struggles is there's lots of inertia. There's lots of, you know, uh, waiting uh, and, and to see how things happen uh, versus organizations are able to move much more quickly uh, that we see. And so we see students wanting to see the organizations um, that they are students of move more quickly. And so I think there is this opportunity for them to learn from each other. And I don't think that uh, that opportunity has been leveraged as much as it could have been. Yeah, one of the things I was always interested in is, you know, when you think about organizations, right, you have, you have to think about the whole organization, you have to think about it as a culture. And, you know, in higher ed, you've got students, you've got faculty, you've got staff, right, there's these, in a way, kind of different classes of employees, right? Uh, you know, who's the customer? Is it the faculty? Is it the faculty who think they're, you know, the reason why it exists? Or is it the students, you know, I mean, so there's, there's some really fascinating dynamics there. But we, we, when we see universities report on things like what they're doing around DEI, it's usually through the lens of their student body, their student population, right? You're seeing a little bit of it to some degree. I don't want to be too critical about staff and faculty DEI initiatives, but that's an area where I think they've, they've invested less time and energy. And some of that played out in some of the research that you, know, that you and I observed in our time at Gallup, right? Where if you look at employee engagement across higher education, um, it's actually lower in, in terms of comparability to other organizations. In fact, colleges and universities are in the bottom quartile of Gallup's global employee engagement database, right? Which is not so great, right? And so, um, and then there's some interesting connections, uh, as, 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 as we know, between employee engagement and feelings of being part of an inclusive organization. And so, you know, so higher ed is low on engagement. And for in, inside that metric, uh, the faculty and staff who said they felt like they were part of an inclusive community, the biggest driver of them feeling that way was whether they felt their opinions at work were heard. So, you know, it, it just, it was an interesting insight to me because I had never really thought about diversity and inclusivity through the lens of opinions being heard. But of course, when you say it, that makes a lot of sense. Tell me a little bit about your reactions to why higher education engagement is so low, and maybe some of your thoughts on those linkages between feelings of inclusivity and some of the, the, the kind of basic management practices that we could improve upon in higher ed, right? I mean, this is about a dean or your manager uh, making you feel like your opinion counts, that it's been heard, that they, you know, so th th this gets down to a pretty tactical level pretty fast. You know, I remember when we were working together at Gallup, what was so surprising is how many institutions had been studying their student and alumni engagement and had never thought to study their faculty and staff engagement, especially on the staff side. And, you know, we just thought it was such a, a big missed opportunity. And so not only were they at the bottom quartile of, you know, our database at Gallup, but they also just weren't even surveying and understanding the inclusive experiences uh, of their faculty and staff. And then once we, you know, got a little bit granular with the data, we found out, you know, because higher ed institutions are so full of hierarchy, uh, oftentimes, you know, staff members feel like their opinions aren't even asked, let alone count, right? And so yeah. uh, because of that, you know, it, it's a huge missed opportunity, um, you know, 
uh, higher ed institutions, of course, should focus on the student experience, but they can't neglect the fact that they are not only serving students, they're serving their workforce, just like any other organization. And without that lens of, you know, how do we make sure our faculty and our staff and our students all feel engaged um, and, and feel like they're included, uh, it's a missed opportunity, and we can't really say we're a, a DEI-focused organization. Um, and so, you know, it, as far as opinions count, I, I think that institutions have to be a little bit more creative in terms of what that looks like because of the hierarchy that exists, right? And so, you know, the hierarchy is there, and, and that is the nature of being an academic institution. However, that doesn't mean you can't provide opportunities uh, for employees and, and staff members specifically to feel like their, their opinions not only count, but they're being valued and considered in the decisions that are made at the higher levels of the institution. Yeah, and, and I've, I've said this uh, often, you know, if you want to drive student engagement, you know, what's the big driver of that? It's staff and faculty engagement. So, you know, these things are not separate, right? They shouldn't be looked at as, as separate things. They're all part of that same culture, right? That overall culture. And there's different nuances within that that are important to note. But, you know, that's an area I think where higher education has a long way to go. Uh, and you're right, to some degree, even though they've been more, I'll call it mission inspired and mission aligned to DEI work than say your typical company, uh, they may or may not have moved swiftly on certain actions, right? And, and so, you know, this is something that I think there's uh, some real room for innovation in higher ed and room for considerable action, right? Is to embrace the, the whole community and your thinking around that. Um, you know, we, we also spent a lot of time uh, dissecting data on the student experience related to the type of uh, organization, type of university they were in. And some of the exciting findings that uh, you and I talked a lot about were from the Gallup-Purdue Index, uh, looking at, you know, the study of, of uh, college graduates and looking at their long-term outcomes and in, in work and, and their overall well-being linked to the experiences they had or didn't have in college. And one of the huge insights from that study was that black graduates from historically black college and universities were several times more likely to say things like they had a mentor who encouraged their goals and dreams, to say that the professors at their alma mater cared about them as a person. So these really important kind of emotional support metrics were off the charts for black graduates from HBCUs compared to black graduates from any other type of university, which we could just call PWIs, right? Predominantly white institutions for, for basic categorization. So, you know, there's a lot that we could unpack there, but tell me a little bit about your thoughts about that. You know, on, on one hand, I don't think that was a surprising finding. How big the differences were though, it was both a great compliment to HBCUs and a really disappointing finding for the rest of higher ed. So just tell me some of your thoughts and reactions to that data. Yeah, well, well, one piece of the, the data that you didn't mention there is, is not only what the student experience was while they were there, which is certainly important, but they're reporting of them thriving after the fact. So just this notion of, you know, being in a, in a space where I feel like I belong and I am not the other, right, or, or I am not the minority, um, not only contributes to how much I enjoy my academic experience, how much I, I learn and grow, how much I retain, how well I do academically, but also how much I thrive later in life. I mean, who wouldn't want to uh, emulate that in some way uh, at, at all schools for all students, right? And so I think there's yeah. something kind of magical in that space. And I can speak from personal experience, uh, having been a graduate of a historically black 
uh, institution, Spelman College, uh, that you do feel a sense of belonging that is very unique. Um, and oftentimes critics of HBCUs uh, will say, well, it's not a reflection of, of real life. But I think our data really rejected that notion uh, when it said, you know, that, that students thrive after the fact. And so it's, it's not about being a reflection of real life. It's, you know, getting that sense of confidence at a young age, uh, having professors that care about you and are invested in your future in a different way. And now we know at PWIs that there are fantastic professors. Um, of all backgrounds that do care about students. But, you know, I think there's something different about how, how diversity and inclusion is embraced and talked about. And it's not an otherness um, that students feel. I mean, I wonder how you would reflect on your experience at Duke as a, a comparison. Well, I, you know, you and I traded some notes on this, but, uh, and, and I, you know, it's not, it's, I'll give my personal, you know, view, which is a Duke ex example. Uh, but I think my broader statement is not a Duke-specific example. It's a pretty pretty standard statement for most PWIs, right? Which is, let's just call it writ large, most of higher education. And and the reality is that um, it, in my memory, right, I, I could be off on this, but I thought through every professor that I had at Duke University. And I can think of one professor who was African-American, right? And it happened to be a class I took on African-American history. So, you know, like... It, 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 I mean, but to think about that, right, to step back for a minute, you know, as a, as a white male at the time, I don't know that I was doing a careful audit of that, you know, and paying like, oh, wow, geez, I, you know, it's easy not to notice those things, which is a, which is an embarrassing point to even, you know, consider. But, you know, in looking back at it, I realized I went through college and almost went all the way through college without having a single black professor, right? And, um, you know, now there was diversity in other respects, certainly in terms of the different types of professors I had, international, male, female, right, other races. So, you know, okay, great on that front. But, um, but you know, then you think about the difference of an HBCU and, you know, you largely have, uh, it's impossible, as we kind of summarize, it's impossible for a student to go through an HBCU and not have had multiple black professors, right? And so that's just, that's a really big difference. And so if I, you know, were to put myself in the other shoes, right, and think of going to college and, you know, being a minority in college and having no white professors and all kinds of stuff like that, yeah, I, I would have felt very differently about my experience. And, um, and I think that's something that we have to be increasingly more attentive to, because uh, it's, it's, it's easy for uh, those of us who are white to lose track of that and, and not really understand the otherness factor. Well, and I also think it's a missed opportunity um, because, you know, many college students that are minorities at PWIs will say they feel tokenized and they feel like they're used for flyers and statistics. Um, and, and much of that is around diversity, right? You know, demographic diversity, which we know is important, but, you know, demographic diversity alone is not uh, enough to create an inclusive environment. We see that in the corporate space and we certainly see that in the higher ed space as well. And I challenge many higher ed institutions to not only think about just the amount of diversity you have, but what is the lived experience of the student on campus? What is the lived experience of those diverse students in the classroom? You know, even if you have a, a you know, 10% population across campus, alone, you know, in, for example, a business school, how many minority students are represented in those classes? And so when you start to think about the actual experience of inclusion and, you know, the lived experience of these students, you then can start to understand why it's about much more than 
diversity. And not that just demographic diversity, again, by itself is the only factor we're considering, but you know, as the, the data show from HBCUs, um, there seems to be a difference in experience and also uh, life outcomes. You know, I would say that one of the most touching moments so far in my teaching career uh, was a student that reached out to me um, unsolicited and said, hey, uh, he, they were a black uh, student and they said, you're the first black professor I've ever had and I'm a graduating senior this semester. Wow. And you know, it's just one of those moments, especially reflecting back to my experience in HBCU as a student that I never said that, I never had to say that, right? And so, yeah. um, it, it makes me feel good, but it certainly also makes me a bit sad that they would have that experience at you know such a diverse and, and welcoming institution like Georgetown, but the, the demographic numbers are what they are. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up this, this um, distinction between demographic diversity, right, and, and, and inclusivity. I feel like, at least in the conversation I've been involved in, we lump D&I together, right? We, we lump DEI together as just a, you know, a nice catch-all phrase. And yet, there are some really big differences and nuances there. Like, yes, it's hard to create demographic diversity. That's not an easy task, right? To have a, a diverse set of students, a diverse set of faculty, a diverse set of employees like that. I don't want to downplay how difficult and important that is. But we know there's lots of examples where there's demographic diversity, but there's very little inclusiveness. And one of the other insights that, uh, that we were talking about was um, from the, you know, the Gallup Purdue Index was that for Hispanic graduates from HSIs, uh, Hispanic serving institutions, the same was not true as it was for black graduates from HBCUs in that there were not increasingly better experiences among Hispanic graduates from HSIs. When we first saw that, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a real, like, why is that the case? And then one of the distinctions I didn't know back then, I do now, was that, you know, HBCUs have been classified as such because of their historical mission and purpose, right? HSIs have been classified by the percentage of students who are enrolled there who are Hispanic students, right? And so, there are institutions who became an HSI last year, let's say, because of the percentage of students enrolled there. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they have purposely set out to build a culture, right, have a mission and purpose to serve those students. And so, you know, that's then where you can start to say, oh, okay, I can understand why that was true for HBCUs and black graduates, but it wasn't for HSIs and Hispanic graduates. So, you know, a lot to unpack there, but I think it goes back to one of the things you mentioned, unless there's a real institutional mission and purpose commitment, right? Like, can we get to inclusivity if it isn't an institutional mission and purpose? No, I, I don't think you can um, because ultimately, you know, you would, you can increase your demographic diversity. Um, but if people don't feel uh, that they belong within the organization, if they don't feel like they're valued for who they are as unique individuals, but also that they fit as a part of the larger community, what, whether we're talking in higher ed spaces with students and, and faculty and staff, uh, or we're talking about in the corporate space, you know, we see these diversity efforts almost fail. Um, and, you know, we see so much uh, kind of frustration on the parts of leaders that feel like they have done everything they can um, on the diversity front, 
but not understanding why they're not seeing, you know, more uh, diversity um, in the leadership ranks, right? And they said, you know, we have these great pipeline programs, what's happening? You have to stop and think about inclusion. It really is kind of the crux of success um, in, in shifting cultures around DEI. And it's, it's interesting that I think organizations are in the past five years have just started to break apart um, this marriage of diversity and inclusion kind of being all in one breath. It's something that um, I've talked a lot about and that's why you see many uh, companies start to say inclusion and belonging or inclusion, diversity and equity and, and kind of switching up the letters um, as a signal that we are we are really focused on inclusion. Not that we're forgetting about demographic diversity. It's still important. It always will be. Um, right. But in inclusion is, is I, I would say, you know, increasingly at the forefront of organizations' uh, minds. And I think that higher ed could learn a bit from that um, in the corporate space to start to think even more about inclusion. Yeah, so I know we're we're almost out of time. On that note, you know, if you had, uh, you're in a role where a lot of organizations in some cases are coming to you for the first time and saying, we need to do something. Well, what do I do? How do I get started, right? And you mentioned that they always wanna know, like, how do I compare to others? And I, I'm just curious, you know, somebody who calls you out of the blue and says, Ella, where, where do we start? What what's your What's your recommendation on the best first step a leader can take towards building a more inclusive culture? Yeah, so I would say, you know, in the, the higher ed space and in the corporate space, it's really important to establish a unified vision. So recognizing that the DEI journey um, and, and from an organizational perspective may be different from the individual leadership journey and, and understanding that, you know, you have to understand and be very clear where you want your organization to go, you know, what we want to be in this DEI space. Um, for on the higher ed side, I've read many very dense DEI institutional strategies, you know, pages and pages of great stuff, lots of research, um, lots of goals. Uh, but then when you ask someone from their key leadership team, you know, so what are we really trying to accomplish? There are 10 different answers, right? And so we, we see right. that in the corporate space as well. And so having a unified vision and then leaders being able to understand how they can play a part in that unified vision, not that it's just the chief diversity officer's role or it's the HR uh, person's role, but it's all of our responsibility to figure out how to activate on this vision um, is the first thing I would say. I would say the second thing that higher ed specifically can, can learn is to reassess and realign often. I mean, I think higher ed actually has the opportunity, especially on the student side, to be super innovative because you have, you know, what we would call in a corporate space, turnover of your right. student population every yeah. four to five years. And so yeah. why not try some innovative things? Why not experiment um, and see if you can push the needle, see if you can be innovative instead of kind of falling into what we often see is uh, in higher ed institutions inertia and being really slow to change. Um, and then the last thing I would really uh, tell uh, my colleagues in the higher ed space is to make sure you're activating inclusive strategies for your workforce in addition to your student population. So yep. you know, we talked about the, the gaps in even measuring inclusion for faculty and staff, uh, but you know, now that we understand that there are those gaps, and not only are those uh, gaps important for in employees, uh, you know, experience working at those institutions, but they do impact student experience. It's all interconnected in this ecosystem yeah. of uh, culture, and so I would certainly uh, encourage uh, higher ed institutions to to start to pay more attention and, uh, to their workforce, uh, and especially around um, inclusion. 
Well, Ella, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join me amidst all the other folks who are uh, desperately seeking your advice right now, and rightfully so. So appreciate your time. I'll look sure, forward to having you back on the show and hearing more of your insights as, uh, as your work evolves. But it was great to see you and uh, have a great rest of the week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch you next Thursday. Thanks, Brandon. See you later. 